Uh, thank you for joining us for the seventh seminar in the Plant Phenome Journal monthly webinar series. My name is Carolyn Lawrence Dill. I'm an associate professor at Iowa State University and an associate editor at the Plant Phenome Journal who handles our speaker's article. And I'll be moderating this discussion and participating next month, May 7th, as uh, Dr. April A.G. Carroll, one of the people currently online, discusses the North American Plant Phenotyping Network that she chairs and I co-chair. You can watch past webinars from the TPPJ on our new YouTube channel. Just search for the Plant Phenome Journal or at the TPPJ website where you can read about cutting-edge work going on in plant phenomics. So our speaker today is Dr. James Schnabel. He's an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He was also the winner just last week of the Rhodes Early Career Maize Genetics Award at the 2018 Maize Genetics Conference, which was in San Malo, France. So if you missed that, you really missed out. Today, James will be speaking about his recently accepted TPPJ paper and associated work titled Comparing Plants Measured on Non-Overlapping Time Points Using Functional Data Analysis. With that, I'm going to turn off my video and hand it over to James. All right. Uh, thank you uh, very much for the introduction, Carolyn, and, and thank you uh, to the Plant Journal, uh, both for accepting our paper and uh, for this opportunity uh, to speak. Now, uh, on my title slide, I have a number of people lined up here, um, uh, Yumo and Yuhang, uh, who are both statisticians and uh, co-authors, uh, co and uh, Yuhang was the, the lead author on this paper, uh, as well as some, some other collaborators uh, here at U, UNL uh, who are contributed to various projects I'm going to talk about. And I'll, I'll try and mention these people again as I go through the slides and, and uh, again highlight them at, at the end of my talk uh, because I think one of the things that really sets plant phenotyping apart from a lot of other fields is you need expertise in such diverse areas. I mean it is not something that uh, really any one lab has the, the relevant expertise to do. Uh, so I'm fortunate to, to be in a network of such great collaborators and I want to make sure that I give them uh, the, the credit uh, that they deserve uh, for both their expertise and, and general helpfulness. So uh, most, actually I think all of the data in this talk, uh, with possibly one exception, uh, comes from a uh, greenhouse phenotyping system at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. This is a, a very carefully drawn diagram, as you can see, uh, where we have uh, four different cameras and we have plants in rows in the greenhouse and the plants in the greenhouse can come out and be uh, photographed uh, with each of these four cameras, which I won't go into in, in any particular detail today. Um, the important things to know about the system is that if you look at North America and you look at the public sector, uh, the facility at UNL uh, cannot grow the most plants. Uh, it can't grow plants uh, at the, the lowest price per plant. The comparative advantage that we have here is that we can grow uh, really big plants. Uh, so we can grow corn or sorghum up to about 2.3 meters, which allows us to look at reproductive stage development. So that, that's our comparative advantage uh, at UNL. That's where we, we focus a lot of our work. So here you can see some actual uh, pictures of the phenotyping system we work with. Uh, we're able to grow about 672 plants at any given time. And as I said, we can grow these plants large enough that we can look at uh, adult stage uh, maize and sorghum. When we uh, do this, we get a, a lot of different types of sensor data, uh, image data. Uh, what you see here are data from four of the five different types of cameras. Uh, an RGB camera that's 
essentially the same as a, a really nice DSLR, DSLR uh, photographing the plant from different angles, and then some other cameras like a hyperspectral fluorescence and thermal infrared. Excuse me. So when we talk about plant phenotyping, it's important to break this down. There are really three different separate domains of expertise, and I always like to, to include this introduction because uh, depending on who you talk to, plant phenotyping can mean different things. Uh, so the first of these is what I would consider the engineering challenge, which is once we've, we can grow some plants, we'd like to collect some pictures or other data uh, from those plants. The uh, second challenge is uh, more of a computer science or machine learning problem, which is that once you have pictures, like the ones I showed you on the previous slide, you have to turn that into some measurement of something you care about uh, from the plant in order to, to actually gain biological insight. So this is our computer vision machine learning challenge. Uh, and then finally, uh, once you have a bunch of numerical measurements of the plant, you have to be able to figure out what to do with those numbers to get back to either identifying genes controlling traits, making predictions about how plants will perform uh, in what way and what environments, uh, all the, the interesting biology. Uh, so this is both a statistics and a quantitative genetics challenge. So a lot, um, yeah, so we have, uh, when we do this imaging, we take, can take photos of plants. We see the, the growth of the plant over time. Uh, this is really good for, for outreach because, I mean, this is, I found actually a really good way to engage either um, school children, farmers, just uh, it's a different way to look at plants. Uh, this challenge of how do we go from these pictures to lots of, of measurements of the plant I think is probably one of the biggest hurdles uh, we face, uh, but it's not the one I'm going to talk about today. Uh, instead, I'm going to focus on a couple of very simple traits that we already know very well how to measure uh, from uh, image data, things like height and biomass. Because that lets me focus on a statistical challenge and how the stati uh, improving statistical methods can help us to address the, some, some real uh, limitations of the engineering challenge of how we actually collect phenotyping data. Now, I showed you this picture before, but one important thing uh, to know about the phenotyping facility at UNL is it was originally designed to only grow uh, 200 plants, and each plant was going to be imaged uh, every day. Uh, we then extended the facility so we could grow more plants, which would make me very happy, because with 200 plants, it's very hard to do quantitative genetics. Uh, the problem is that, uh, well, uh, let's see, I guess my mouse sort of shows up on the screen. Uh, while it's easy to add more plants, it's very uh, difficult to increase the throughput of the actual uh, data collection. And I think this is something you would generally see in a wide range of different types of plant phenotyping. Uh, it's relative, adding, adding plants is relatively cheap, um, but adding more capacity to collect uh, image or other trait data can be quite expensive. This isn't just the hardware, for example, with, with drone-based imaging, you have to actually have someone who can fly the drone, and you have to get them to the field, and uh, yeah, anyway, there are lots of these bottlenecks. So this created a problem. Uh, for a field experiment, or really any quantitative genetics experiment, even 672 plots, so each plot plants is a relatively uh, small field experiment. Uh, here in the greenhouse, we can grow 672 plants, but we can only image about 400 of them together on a single day, um, which uh, most uh, conventional methods for being able to look at traits and identify genes really do require that we have data from all the plants uh, at the same time. Now, this is not a unique problem. Uh, 
to, to UNL or to plant phenotyping. And so there are a number of strategies people have come up with to deal with the idea that if you don't have data from, from all the plants and all the days. Uh, the, perhaps the most basic traditional approach is just to drop the data points. Um, I have a, a grad student right now, he's working on a very different project and was working with a, a really large GWAS data set and from many, many years in many, many locations. He decided to do this. And so he went from about 300 genotypes and 60 traits to about 10 traits and 50 genotypes. And we had to uh, walk through the fact that this was not going to work for GWAS and we needed a solution other than just dropping uh, lines and, and data sets with lots of missing data. Uh, another option is just to fill in average values. Again, uh, there are some obvious problems with that. Uh, perhaps the, the most relevant one for this conversation are what are called uh, parametric models. Uh, so, for example, if you look at plant growth, uh, plant growth is often modeled as a sigmoidal or logistic curve, um, where at the beginning you have a very small plant, the plant grows really slowly, uh, the growth accelerates, 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 and then uh, slows down as you uh, reach flowering maturity. Uh, and a, a sigmoidal or logistic curve like this can be defined really by only uh, three parameters, um, which are highlighted here. This was a very last minute slide. Uh, anyway, uh, one is you know the, the the sort of peak value that you reach, so the difference between your your starting point and your end point. Uh, another is the essentially the rate of growth. So what is the time from when you start uh, growing to the the point of maximum uh, inflection in the curve, and the final is that slope of that curve. So with just three values, you can model this uh, growth curve, and then you can try and take all of your data points and fit them on this growth curve and project the, the, point, the data points that are missing for any uh, given sample. And this actually works reasonably well, at least for some traits like uh, biomass, uh, most of the time. Uh, the problem is that uh, as, a, as a biologist, and as a, I'm, I'm, my training was as a geneticist, not as a, a breeder, the, the times when models don't work are the stuff that we're you know, really excited about. So it's, uh, uh, a bit depressing if in order to work with these types of data we have to throw out all the, the really interesting and weird exceptions. Um, and the solution to this, and this is uh, something I didn't even know about until I started collaborating with the statisticians here at UNL, uh, is to use what are called uh, non-parametric models. So while a parametric model can be defined by a small number of uh, variables in a function, uh, non-parametric models don't require prior assumptions uh, about what shape of curve you're going to see in the data, but just uh, try and fit whatever uh, shape or pattern is there uh, and should allow us to capture uh, interesting weirdness uh, than parametric models. And this was the focus of the paper that was ex uh, accepted to plant genome. So uh, about the same time we were realizing we had this real problem with being able to score even uh, small sets of, of plants on the same day. Uh, we were fortunate that the University of Nebraska-Lincoln hired uh, Yuhan, who's the new assistant professor in the Department of Statistics here. Uh, and he did his PhD work at Iowa State, uh, working with uh, also phenotypes, but very different phenotypes. Uh, so he was looking at the gravitropic response in uh, maize roots. And again, was building these uh, models that allowed him to uh, both uh, fill in for missing data and also uh, provide more accurate estimations because you can share data from, from similar data points. Uh, and this uh, this work from his PhD uh, just came out uh, last year in a, 
actually I forget the journal name off the top of my head, but a, a statistics journal, not a plant phenotyping journal, unfortunately. So we, uh, I was sitting down and talking to, to Johan at one point, and we said, okay, it would be good to adapt these uh, methods to working with plant data, but we need to know, first of all, do they work? And for that, we need uh, a useful data set that we can, we can play around with. And fortunately, we have such a data set, which was generated uh, several years ago, back when the greenhouse could only hold about 200 plants. So these were, uh, all the plants were imaged every single day. Uh, this was a, a very early phenotyping work paper that was published uh, a couple of years ago uh, with another of my, my collaborators, Yufeng Ga, who's a, a biosystems engineer. We had only two, two sets of factors, so we had a treatment, and the treatment was either drought, where the plants stopped being watered, uh, so a pretty extreme drought, or not drought, and then uh, two genotypes, uh, either B73 or mini-maize. Uh, this is specifically uh, fast-flowering mini-maize A, uh, which was developed by Morgan uh, McCaw at University of Missouri with uh, Jim Birchler, and I, I want to make sure I thank him. We ran out of seed. Uh, it should be easy to bulk a fast-flowering mini-maize plant, but we were going through seed very quickly, so he was uh, willing to share some additional seed with us. Uh, and this very early ex uh, experiment, we started imaging only six days after planting, so about when the plants emerged, and then imaged through 26 days. So this is actually a relative I would say this does not play to our strengths at, at the institution, but uh, in the early days we wanted data that was comparable to what was being generated using other facilities. Um, so this, this was the data set we could use. And, and one of the things I want to emphasize on this slide is that phenomics data, it's uh, like high-throughput sequencing data, there's a lot of potential for reuse of data sets. So I was very happy that we had done a good job of, of uh, annotating this data and, and storing it. Uh, properly so that we were able to go back and, and reuse it for another purpose and not have to, to run another very expensive experiment. Uh, there are a number of data sets like this uh, on the lab website. If anyone would like to use them for other purposes, uh, you, you should feel free, free to. We, we want to encourage reuse as much as possible. So we can dig into this data set uh, and look at the, the individual growth curves. So this is just plant area, total number of pixels. As I said, we're uh, avoiding all of the, the interesting complicated phenotypes that you can, we're starting to learn how to extract from image data. And you can see that there are obvious differences both between the two genotypes, the B73, which is the reference genotype for maize, and this uh, fast-flowering mini-maize, which is a much smaller plant with a faster life cycle. Uh, you can also see that the, uh, if you stop watering plants, they, they don't grow as, as fast, uh, which is, is not a groundbreaking finding. But again, uh, there's this uh, significant difference. You can also see that uh, this isn't entirely clean. The, the, the data will, for individual plants will bounce around a little bit from day to day, uh, and there's a fair bit of overlap as we, we plot these individual plants. So uh, what uh, Yuhang's expertise is in this uh, functional data analysis, where uh, you fit a, a non-parametric uh, curve to the data, which is, is very flexible in terms of having limited numbers of assumptions. Um, and it allows us to uh, calculate confidence bands around that, that estimated effect. It also allows us to separate out the effects. Um, so we can, we can plot for individual plants, we can also plot for groups and separate out the effects of different treatments uh, or different genotypes. Um, now I'm going to click through these next couple of slides uh, slowly, but I'm not going to say very much because I'm not a statistician. Uh, and I have to admit that I, I could not re-implement this model myself if I tried. Uh, the details of this are, are in the published paper, and if there's anything that is unclear in the paper, 
uh, please do reach out to me or to you, Hong, and, and we can make it uh, a bit more clear. Um, so essentially, we're fitting uh, splines to the, the data um, and using cross-validation to figure out how much smoothing makes sense, how much is actually removing real signal. Um, I'm not sure what to say about this slide, but I'm going to show it for a couple of seconds. And if, as I say, all of this was is in the paper itself. But one of the, the things that does make sense to emphasize uh, at this point is once we fit, fitted these uh, smooth uh, splines to the data, it allows us to, to both estimate what measurements should be uh, throughout the entire course of development, uh, but also to look at the first and second derivatives uh, of the data, uh, which is useful. So what you see here is simply the, the growth functions first for each of the four possible combinations of two genotypes and two treatments, uh, and then the uh, functions that were estimated for the effect size uh, of both genotype and treatment. Uh, so the, the genotype effect is uh, the predominant one early on, uh, and then as the plants start running out of water and, and also getting larger so their water demands get higher, the uh, drought stress effect becomes larger. But I'm, as I highlighted in the previous slide, one of the really interesting or really useful things about this is that we can get the uh, derivatives of these curves from the, the same map that gives us the curves themselves. So we can also look, oh, I'm jumping ahead myself, uh, we can also put uh, fit confidence bands around these effect sizes. Uh, so you can see that the, the effect of drought stress, we're, we're uh, relatively uh, confident in the, the pattern. If you look at the genotype effect, the genotype, the error around the genotype effect gets larger uh, as we get later into the experiment, which is indicating that there's a lot more variance, uh, both within the B73 plants and within the uh, fast-flowering mini-maze in terms of how large they are. And then this would be the slide uh, with derivatives. So the uh, this is, again, the first derivatives of, the in, of all possible pairwise combinations of, of factors and genotypes, and then of the uh, effect sizes. So you can see that the, the genotype effect, the, the rate of change for genotype effect uh, stays about the, the same throughout the experiment, whereas, as we could see from the previous curve, the uh, effect of the drought stress accelerates uh, throughout the experiment. So I, I always have to think back to uh, high school physics, and so that we've got the position, which is the, the trait we're measuring, and then the first derivative, which is the, the velocity of uh, change. I could also show you the graph of the, uh, the second derivative, which would be acceleration. I'm still trying to wrap my head around what acceleration means in terms of a, a plant phenotype, but uh, we do see that there's uh, useful data in the second derivative. It's just hard to tie it back to something biologically meaningful so far. Right. So the, the reason we got into this is that we have this problem. We can't. Uh, we have a relatively small number of plants we can grow at any one time. And even if we use the whole uh, greenhouse facility, we can't uh, image all the plants on the same days. So uh, using the same uh, uh, non-parametric functional regression, uh, we can look at what, what our accuracy looks like if we look at all the plants, say, every second day as opposed to every day. And we do sacrifice a little bit of accuracy um, say only about one and a half percent. So uh, from sampling every second day. 
So this tells us, in fact, that we probably could sample less, and I believe we, we took this down to, to once every fourth day, and we were still getting uh, pretty good uh, accuracy, and it did not work to go once every eighth day when you only have 20 data points, because that, I think, puts two points on the curve, but I think if we had a captured longer period of time, we would be able to do even, even more subsampling. The thing that really excited me about this, and I, I had to explain this um, to, to my statistical collaborators, because to them it was very obvious, is that instead of uh, subsampling every second day, we can also subsample the data looking at some plants on one day, other plants on the second day, and back and forth uh, like that. And again, we are sacrificing very small amounts uh, of accuracy and measurements, which allows us to pro uh, project the, the missing data points and be able to, to make uh, direct comparisons. You'll also see that the, the error tends to be higher uh, earlier in the experiment. Uh, remember, this is uh, a measurement of relative difference. And this is something we've seen in a number of different experiments uh, that have been analyzed in my lab. Uh, there's uh, a bit more about this. This is a, a, another paper that came out last year by a grad student of mine, uh, Jakai Liang. Uh, what he found is that if you look at just the, the heritability of measurements, so the proportion of total variance that is explained by genotype, this heritability goes up uh, over time. Excuse me. Uh, and so what we think is happening here is essentially the amount of error in measurements from measuring a plant using image data is, is relatively fixed. So as plants get bigger, your absolute values are larger, so the error as percent of the, the value is going down. And once you subtract out, uh, as, the, as the error gets smaller, uh, more of the remaining variance uh, is left over to be explained uh, by genotype. So again, this is, this is nice because this is what we're set up to do, is work with, with really big plants. So now for something slightly different. I, as I said, we're set up to work with uh, really big plants, but uh, really big relative to seedlings. So there's such a thing. Uh, there are situations where hybrid vigor is a bad thing. Uh, this is a, a photo from another experiment we ran uh, working with some recently off-patent maize hybrids. Uh, what will jump out to those of you in the audience who are familiar with corn is that these plants coming uh, through the imaging system uh, don't have tassels anymore. Uh, we were able to grow the inbreds perfectly well. The hybrids uh, had a little bit too much vigor. They were over the maximum height, so we had to unexpectedly uh, curtail the experiment uh, when the tassels started hitting the walls as the, the plants were coming through the system. So that clearly was not a, a strategy that was going to give us interesting data sets to play around with. Uh, fortunately, we have this close relative of, of maize, which is also a, a substantial crop, both in Nebraska and around the U.S., which is sorghum. Um, a lot like corn in a lot of ways, uh, more drought tolerant, uh, smaller genome, much harder to cross, and uh, most importantly, the, the material that we grow in the U.S. is usually uh, substantially shorter than corn. Now, there are still tall sorghums. Here you see a couple of folks in my lab collecting some, some field data from some cuts. Uh, so we, there's enough genetic diversity, even if we look at stuff that is uh, short enough that we can grow it uh, in the greenhouse. Uh, so by this point, we've learned a lot of lessons. This experiment uh, was run over the last year and is, in fact, still ongoing. Uh, so we. Uh, selected from a, a, an existing association panel, uh, the Casa, Casa Sorghum Association panel, uh, about 400 lines. Uh, we picked about 300 of those uh, based on field phenotyping to select lines that would be less than 2.3 meters tall at flowering. Uh, 
in the greenhouse, so we would be able to, to grow the plants without having to chop off the heads, which is uh, very depressing and uh, not particularly agronomically relevant. Uh, this panel had been grown for two years in phenotype here in Nebraska, and there are also many other published uh, phenotypic data sets generated uh, for the, the CASA uh, Sorghum Association panel. Another lesson that I have learned in the couple of years I've been doing this now is life is so much easier if you can work with genetic material where someone else is also doing the hard work of generating uh, ground truth data for you. Uh, otherwise, you spend, actually, even so, you spend probably a lot more time just making measurements of plants. Uh, than you would if you weren't trying to do hydrogen phenotyping in the first place. Uh, we'd also learned that the you know small seedlings uh, there just isn't a lot to to see on a hydrogen phenotyping system, and the error tends to be a lot larger. Uh, so these plants were grown off belt for about a month and a half, and then imaged for about a month. Uh, and we tried as much as possible to include flowering time uh, in that window. Uh, majority of these lines already had about 400,000 uh, SNP markers, which had been genotyped for them. Uh, and then we did an additional round of genotyping with 150,000 uh, SNP markers uh, across all the lines that we had grown. And this was really was and is really exciting because we finally have a data set large enough to, to map back to, to causal SNPs or causal regions of the genome. Um, and given my own uh, training and, and, and predilection for uh, wanting to understand, you know, what gene does what, that that made uh, life, uh, starts to make life a lot more fun. Uh, we also collaborated, uh, Randy Sigman, who's a research assistant professor here at University of Nebraska and has been the person growing these in the field. Uh, so she has both been phenotyping the field and then phenotyping the same plants that come off of the, the greenhouse system. Uh, with an interest primarily in inflorescence architecture and we're uh, hoping ultimately to be able to derive a lot of these same traits from the image data. But when you look at these, uh, you know, well-defined traits uh, that are sort of terminal traits that are taken at the end of the growing season, we're able to do very good mapping and uh, identify uh, a relatively small numbers of high-confidence candidate genes. And that's, that's how conventional quantitative genetics works. Uh, the problem we're running into, and the, the, the problem that this talk is focused on, is how do we deal with uh, time series phenotypes? So this is this is simply plant height um, collected from that, that imaging data, and how do I describe this uh, as a as a trait? I mean, I could take the, the height at the end of the experiment, but clearly we're throwing away a lot of data uh, about the shape of the curve and when the plant grows. You can also see that this uh, this shape would not uh, fit a uh, we wouldn't be able to fit a single logistic curve to this data. And of course, we can also look at these first and second derivatives. So the, the first thing to do is just throw computational resources at the problem. Uh, unfortunately, I have uh, grad students who are, are happy to do that. So what you see here are uh, separate GWASs for plant height on uh, every single day when image data was collected. You can see that the days after planting is ticking up in units of two because uh, plants were only, only imaged every second day. Uh, and what was striking to me when we got this uh, analysis was, first of all, we, we don't see a lot of uh, genes controlling height. Uh, normally in the Sorghum Association panel, you, you are able to map all of them. It sort of made sense that you wouldn't be able to in this case, uh, just because we've thrown away a lot of the really tall lines, which would be the ones that have wild type alleles of dwarfing genes. But the other interesting thing is that uh, we are able to pick up uh, dwarf 3, which is on chromosome 7, early uh, in the experiment, and then that uh, fades away entirely 
uh, as we're going a little further along. And I was wondering, you know, so why are we losing the signal uh, for later in development? And we can look at the, the curves for the individual plants, and the data looks really, really messy. Let's see. But this, I think, is what's happening. So what you see here is a single uh, sorghum plant over a period of about uh, two and a half weeks. And well, that is a really noisy game. Anyway, what you see are seeing here is the actual emergence of the panicle. And if we, instead uh, of looking at the days after planting for individual, individual genotypes, we line them up uh, by when we uh, first observe the, the emergence of the panicle. Uh, we, start to see, we can start to see much cleaner patterns emerging in the data. Uh, some genotypes you see this, this large increase in height around the panicle because you have uh, substantial head exertion. Uh, in other genotypes you really don't see that because the panicle stays down in the leaves. So we took the exact same height data and instead of comparing the same number of days after planting for every single genotype, we instead looked at the number of days before or after the panicle could first be observed in the image data. Oh yeah, uh, just a messy data. And now you see this is uh, another version uh, of the same GWAS plot. Uh, we have uh, both uh, dwarf 2, dwarf 4, and dwarf 3 can be picked up at various points. Dwarf 1 almost comes to statistical significance. And we also pick up a couple of uh, additional loci that, that show substantial significance. Um, I think those additional loci are probably not actually unknowns. They're probably known uh, flowering time genes. Uh, and Chen Yong is doing that right now. The other much more embarrassingly basic problem that you run into with this type of data is I can show you these animated graphs, and which are hopefully showing coming through uh, the WebEx all right. But it's very hard to, to look at this and, and really think about patterns other than to see, okay, look, I can identify some things at some time points and other things at other time points. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. So we need another way to visualize this. And this was uh, stolen uh, completely from, uh, I think, a paper by Edward Spalding that was looking at QTLs. So what you see here is on the, uh, the y-axis, we have positions along the 10 chromosomes of sorghum, uh, not labeled yet because we're st uh, still implementing this in, in Matplotlib and Python. And then on the, um, the x-axis, we see each of the, the, the days after planting, uh, each column is a separate GWAS. And then we're looking at uh, windows across the genome so that we actually had something we could uh, plot on here. So in the, uh, in the days after planting analysis, we really only get one substantial, which is that uh, dwarf 3 gene. And we lose that, uh, this, the signal from that gene uh, after about uh, 10 days into the experiment. If instead we do this, uh, we, we line plants up based on when we see the panicle, instead of uh, when, we, uh, when we planted them, we're able to pick up uh, many more uh, statistically significant loci across multiple days. So the signal from dwarf 3 actually uh, is not as strong anymore, uh, but we are able to pick up uh, dwarf 2 and 4. As I said, dwarf 1 doesn't really show up a lot, as well as uh, three other loci that uh, rise above the threshold of statistical significance at some point or another. Uh, all right, so yes, I think I already gave this disclaimer, which is that I think the unknowns are probably actually known maturity loci. And there should be a second disclaimer here. Um, oh, yes, this is based on only a single uh, replicate of the, the panel, so I would, I would never try and publish this. 
Uh, the second replicate is being analyzed as we speak, and the third is, is actually growing the greenhouse right now. And we'll start collecting data uh, in a couple of weeks, I think. So once we, we have three of these, we, we should actually be able to, to say something with confidence. So uh, the first key message from this, uh, from what I've set, shared so far, uh, is that I think you know having the, the, the both the equipment and the, the people to, to image full experiments all at one time is uh, really one of the primary bottlenecks in being able to do uh, large scale uh, quantitative genetic and and or breeding experiments right now using high phenotyping. Uh, and using techniques like functional data analysis uh, that don't require making assumptions about how traits change over time, but can uh, infer missing data points, at least for things that, that show trends over multiple days, uh, means we can do you know, two to four times the size of the experiment for essentially the, the same cost um, and, and makes it more feasible to actually be able to uh, identify you know, interesting genes or, or, or new varieties that are better adapted to new climates. Any of the stuff that is probably the reasons we got into either biology or, or breeding or high throughput phenotyping or what have you. Um, so the data I've shown you is, is from a greenhouse study. Um, I'm hoping to, to soon have data to, to test whether this really does work in a field setting. Uh, we're doing that in two ways. One is this um, uh, uh, cable-based system that the University of Nebraska has invested in. Uh, we have about a one-acre footprint with uh, um, 360 separate two-row plots under it. We're going to be able to, to move this payload system back and forth over it, collecting uh, both image and uh, uh, thermal data throughout the season, uh, as well as being able to treat with different water levels. Uh, and then secondly, uh, working with more conventional drone-based systems uh, with my colleague Oscar Rodriguez, our, our popcorn breeder, and uh, Yang Shi, who's uh, another engineer who's, who's focused more on the un unmanned aerial systems, and I believe uh, came out of uh, Texas A&M, and I think, I think actually worked with uh, Seth Murray, one of our, our hosts, at one point. Uh, so we were fortunate to be able to grab her up here at UNL. The, the second key message, and I think maybe this one has, has broader applicability, um, is that the, the assumption of things like a QTL mapping or GWAS is that we're comparing the, the same thing uh, between different genotypes. And that's relatively easily, easy at the seedling stage, and it's relatively easy for terminal stage phenotypes. Uh, in the middle of the plant growth cycle, though, I think it, it's, it's a, a really hard thing. Uh, plants develop at different rates. Uh, you know, you can look at variation total life cycle within that life cycle. Uh, different parts will be shorter or longer. So how do we actually make these uh, comparisons? So in the short term, I think we're, we're developing much better techniques to be able to pick uh, which data points are going to be the most equivalent between uh, different genotypes, different treatments, and different environments. Uh, in the longer term, there are statistical techniques for actually comparing the, the shapes of curves over time rather than having to do point-wise comparisons. Um, this is relatively straightforward for parametric models because, again, the shape of your curve is defined by a relatively small uh, So I did a, a rotation years ago in a circadian biology lab, and that, that was so nice, right? So essentially every pattern of circadian regulation you come across is defined by only three parameters, uh, the phase, the period, and the, the amplitude. And so everything can be reduced to those two, uh, three factors. Uh, however, there are techniques for uh, being able to compare the functions and curves derived from non-parametric models. 
uh, that statisticians, statisticians know about. It's just a question of being able to, to find people with expertise and pull them uh, into plant phenotyping and get them excited about these problems, uh, which means we need uh, fun data sets, fun and well annotated data sets for them to play with. Um, and at the very least, if, you, if you're doing anything that is looking at the, the middle part of plant growth and not seedling stage and not uh, mature trait, uh, it really makes sense to con control for flowering time, um, which is not a new message by any means here. Uh, that was a missing line there. Uh, so I, I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, and this, the, the sort of work I'm talking about here is not something that my own lab could do on its own. We don't have the expertise. So we're very fortunate to work with uh, some great uh, engineers. Um, I mentioned Yang Shi. Um, a lot of this data was generated uh, out of Yufeng Ge, who's a, uh, I mentioned a, an engineer here, and a couple of members of his lab, including Piyush and Frank. Uh, Frank, we've just hired to, to manage a, a phenotyping facility, so we're going to get to hold on to him uh, long term. Uh, similarly, the, the statisticians who, who we've been willing to, to play around with phenotyping data sets uh, that none of this would have been possible. Uh, Yuhang, who was the, the lead author on the, the paper that inspired this presentation. Uh, Yumo, who's also uh, an author on there and has, uh, is just a, a really great collaborator. And Jennifer Clark, who runs the Quantitative Life Sciences, uh, Quantitative Life Sciences Institute out here. And then, of course, also the, the plants and computer bits. So I, uh, I'm very fortunate to both the expertise I have in my lab. Uh, a lot of the work uh, from members of my lab that I've shown it comes primarily from, from Chen Yong Mao, you know, who's a second-year PhD student, and Jakai, who's a third-year PhD student, and then our collaborator, uh, Brandy Sigmund, who's a, uh, a real geneticist and, and field biologist. Um, it's also, you know, fortunate that I, this phenotyping work gets supported by a lot of diverse sources, which is good because it's both expensive and labor-intensive, and uh, I also really want to thank uh, the Plant Phenome Journal and, and the organizers both for accepting the, the paper and for this opportunity to present. Uh, it's a, a real challenge figuring out where to send papers that are, are more about, hey, we had this interesting problem and this is how we solved it, but don't make that next step to the biology. Um, one solution would be just to wait until we actually have, we've solved a, an interesting biological uh, question with, with our solution, but I think that slows things down. I mean, it can slow things down by several years sometimes. Uh, so it's, it's nice to have this form to be able to put out, uh, you know, here's the solution and, and hopefully it's useful to other people uh, before we've actually uh, answered our biological problem. Uh, and with that, thank you all very much for your attention. Thank you, James. I always feel like at the ends of these things we need to clap because there are so many people that are online and you can't even hear it. So, yay, thank you. Um, so we have a good deal of time here, about 20 minutes, uh, for a question and answer. Uh, I'll open it up first, let's see, to anyone that is on the call that's not me. Oh, I've got something from Seth already. Um, okay. So Seth, uh, I guess I can repeat the question. Hopefully everyone can see the text chat, but if not, uh, Seth is asking, if terminal phenotypes cannot be anticipated from early growth, as you show, what does this say about the, the utility of using automated greenhouses that only do seedling screens? Uh, I think it depends a lot on what traits you're looking at. I mean, a lot are, you know, more at the level of photosynthetic efficiency or uh, very basic physiological traits. It's probably more likely that you can get useful predictions from uh, seedling or, or relatively small 
phenotypes. Uh, if you're looking at things like you know plant architecture, resource use efficiency, yield, um, I don't think that doing seedling screens is, is the right way to get at those. So I, I have a different question. Uh, it's sort of at a different level. It's not really about the biology. Okay. Um, the work that you do, you involve expertise in really diverse areas. How do you build those teams? How do you bring in people when you know you have a gap? And how do you make it worth their while? Because this kind of bringing teams together and working through it well, it's not easy. Uh, no, it's, it certainly is not. So I can say a little bit about what I've done, but I think it's uh, really important before that to say, I mean, one major advantage I have has nothing I, I can't take any credit for, which is that I was hired at the University of Nebraska at a time when our, our administration had decided to do a, a major renewal of faculty. So a lot of people had gotten buyouts and a lot of new professors were hired. So it was like the, the first week in a new high school where no one knows what table to sit at. Uh, it was a lot easier to build these collaborations because nobody knew what they were doing yet. Uh, and if you look at, I mean, uh, I think Oscar is the exception. I mean, almost all the faculty I'm working with are people who were hired in the last four years. And that's not uh, anything intentional. I think it's just that those were the people who had sort of thoughts for collaboration. So that, that's the, the thing I was, uh, good fortune that had nothing to do with, with anything I did myself. Um, that was just people with bandwidth yeah. available. Yeah, pe people with, good people with bandwidth who are available. In terms of how you sustain those, though, I think that important thing is you have to understand everyone's incentive structure and that, that can be very different for a computer scientist or an engineer or a breeder um, and then be be willing to always feel like oh I, I, another question I'll, I'll jump to in a second uh, you're always going I mean, it's, it's it's like any relationship you're always going to feel like you're doing more than your share and right. you recognize what <laughs> the other people do as well Right. And then finally, I mean, being really good about giving credit where credit is due. Um, I tried to have you know everyone through this talk, and, and whenever I, I go anywhere, I, I try and explain, you know, these are really good folks. Usually that helps a lot. Occasionally uh, it backfires when uh, your collaborators get poached away by other universities. Uh, but what can you do? <laughs> All right, uh, Katie or Caddy, um, mentioned a you've mentioned a few times that you collected field data as well as greenhouse. I understand you still need to ground truth it, but can you make a preliminary comment on the correlations you have observed between field, field and greenhouse? So for some things, the correlation is, is quite good. So if we look at uh, height or flowering time for plants grown in the greenhouse in the summer, uh, we, we see very good predictions um, between the, the, green, the field collected data and the greenhouse collected data uh, for a lot of other things, uh, we see very good correlations. Again, excuse me, more complex traits, water use efficiency, biomass yield, yield itself. Uh, a lot of things that have more to do with biochemistry, I'm optimistic, we'll see better predictions um, than, than uh, traits that are, I, I guess, closer to, to fitness that are the output of so many different factors in the plant that all have to work together to determine something like uh, Biomass yield. Okay, are there other questions? Give it a pause. Oh, got one. Two. Oh, all right. Let's see. Let's start with Matt. 
you mentioned that you can phenotype subsets of the plants on different days to overcome the plant number limitations. Are you replicating the plants on those days to have complete blocks, incomplete blocks for the unreplicated genotypes, or how are you controlling the day effect for phenotyping? So in, in the data that I have shown, um, there, is, there is one check genotype that is replicated across both houses. Um, but other than that, this, the, the GWAS results I showed you, that, that is one plant per genotype uh, with only one, one replicate. So we really are constrained by the number of plants we can grow uh, in a greenhouse at a single time. This is something I, I mean, a lot of the folks I collaborate with over, or a lot of the folks who run the facility, uh, I think their training is in physiology. Uh, so I think they think that I'm very unreasonable because for them, you know, if you have 40 or 50 plants, you can do an interesting experiment. Um, I, I need hundreds of genotypes in order to be able to say anything. So it would be experimental design in the greenhouse matters a lot. Uh, we see we definitely see row and column effects, and we uh, when we can, we try and correct for that with the check genotypes. We don't have complete replicated blocks in the same grow out. I would love to if I had space. All right, Steve. Um, Do you think implementing three-parameter logistical models are appropriate when you are only phenotyping, say, the first 40 days, as terminal height has not been achieved and the maximum growth may, rate may not be achieved yet? Uh, how do non-parametric models address this question? It seems they are somewhat assuming a terminal plateau when the model is plotted similar to logistic models. So yeah, so um, there are two different uh, problems. So one is interpolating missing data. The other is projecting uh, out beyond the, the range of data that you've collected. And so I don't think that non-parametric models work very well for projection. They, they work really well for interpolation. So I've, I've got data throughout this growth period, but I'm missing data points, or you know, maybe the, it was a thunderstorm, so we didn't you know, fly for, we didn't fly the, the drones for a week or something. For that, what you're talking about where you've collected part of the season and you're making projections farther out, uh, you really do need to make a lot of assumptions about how the, the plant is going to develop. And since you need to make those assumptions anyway, uh, I would say uh, logistical models um, are going to work much better uh, for projecting outside of the range of what's been observed than non-parametric models. Very nice. You've got another uh, yeah. question. Okay. Uh, Acer, so you see interesting SNPs pop out of the GWAS at different time points. Do you still pick these up when you're looking at the functions? In other words, do you miss important variation when your model, your model traits as functions? So for the non-parametric functions, and we haven't tried parametric functions in this data set, um, we've run the GWAS uh, with and either with the raw data or with the values of the functions at the time points when we collected the data. And the results are about the same. If anything, they're a little bit better uh, when we look at the point on the curve uh, of the curve of the function rather than the value itself. I think that's because we're borrowing data from adjacent time points. So the curve may actually be a more accurate measurement of the true value of the trait at that time than the measurement of the trait from the, the image. Very nice. Thank you. Okay, anyone else? While we still have James on the hot seat here. Okay, well, with that, let's thank James again. Uh, and I'll put in one last plug for the Plant Phenome Journal. If this is the kind of work that you're doing, this is where it belongs. When you're marrying uh, the methods that you're generating with this general area of plant phenomics, 
we'd like to see your paper. So we encourage you to talk with one of the editors and to submit your manuscripts. Thank you again, Jane. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for coming. Bye-bye.